Hello, Matt. Hola. Wagwan. I am calling you from a hotel room in Spain. Is that how they speak now? Yeah, they, they speak... The Spanish. They speak English, but in a weird accent. Oh. Like the Wrath of Khan. Oh, I love the Wrath of Khan. El podcast interplanetario. Exploración del espacio para el beneficio de toda la humanidad. Sus anfitriones aquí en España y Londres, Matthew Russell y Jamie Franklin. Um, well, I hope that you're not getting any wrath of anyone, Matt. I hope you're having a lovely glass of sangria and staring out into the, uh, the deep blue ocean. I tell you what, it's, it's free food and free booze all day long. I've never eaten and what? drunk so much in my life. It's a, a, I'm like a dog that, you know, when you sort of it just eats, it just eats food out the dog bowl. You, our listeners won't know this unless they've had dinner with you, um, but I have many times, and you're scarily fast at eating, aren't you? No, uh, just... Just like a joke. I am the fastest eater, I know. I need to teach you the values of mastication, Matthew. <laughs> That's funny, because <laughs> I've been recently talking to my boys about that as well. You know, yeah, 13 very important. It's very important. Uh, Two, it's 20 part... times before you swallow. It's what my old school teacher well, said. Well, it really is. It really is. Mastication is definitely linked to longevity. It's, yeah. part, of the, it's part of the digestive process. It really is. So, <laughs> <laughs> on that um, note, um, on Matt, that note you, you've just had a, an amazing Skype chat with uh, the one and only David Baker. How did it I, go? It was absolutely incredible, Jamie. I'm afraid but I couldn't join because of, of the technologies a, we're technology facing. Technology Skype. However, Skype have changed their, uh, changed their interface again, which meant I just couldn't work out how to oh, do it. I know, I know. I know but I know I'm in for a treat because what a legend. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, David did all the talking. There's no point talking over David because he's yeah, very, exactly. very, very knowledgeable. Um, uh, so, yes, David, then the some. editor of Spaceflight magazine, the monthly BIS publication, which you is... absolutely uh, need to get involved, peeps. You do, you do, and you get it free if you're a member of the BIS. What? You get it free if you're a member of the BIS. God, what more do you want? Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, we're just going to get on with that story, but I thought I'd better just um, say one thing, Jamie, which Go is on, the, interplanetary the interplanetary podcast, podcast. Putting, the, putting ace the ace back back in into space. space, and not like <laughs> ULA putting the aces back into spaces. That's very true. That's very true. So, Matt, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Wag one in the week of space. What's been happening? Well, there is one really big thing that we should know about, and that's on Friday we're going to get a crew launch. Oh, yes. Who's going up? Uh, it is uh, uh, the uh, Expedition 52, and it's uh, Paolo Nespoli of ESA, Sergei Ryanzanski of Roscosmos, and Randy Bresnik of NASA. I hope I pr pronounced all those names within a certain I boundary of correctness. I think that sounds good. I think that sounds good. From Kazakhstan, of course, uh, on Friday. And there's been some brilliant uh, photos of that. that I, I have to say, the Soyuz is a fine-looking rocket. It just has that 70s coolness. Well, 60s and 70s coolness. Kind of the space race coolness about it. It's just so brilliant. Just for a minute, imagine what it would be like. I'd blow your mind, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sitting on top of that thing, it's just so yeah. it's so brilliant. I love the way that they paint the bottom of all the, en the the sort of engines. They've got a nice red, 
and it's the way they tip it into the into the launch thing. Oh, it's everything's good. Everything's really cool about it. Everything so there's that, is cool. Jamie. So so uh, that's one to really look forward to. Yeah. And um, uh, also in the news um, were a um, the Starship probes, or little sprites, are currently in orbit. So they're the the, the smallest. Uh, satellites, working satellites, ever to to, to get into Earth orbit. Oh, oh yes. I love I that they... word, sprite. Is yeah, a sprite they... um, in the fantasy world? What is a sprite? Is it uh, is it like a little isn't it like a fairy, naughty, isn't, it? isn't it like a naughty fairy or yeah, a little go- is tiny it a goblin? Fairy. Maybe no, it's not a goblin. Goblins are much bigger than sprites. Are they? Yeah, goblins are kind of your nanosat. And your sprites <laughs> <laughs> are more like little, little, yes, little fairies or right. fireflies. I okay. Guess. Well, I'm yeah. going to have to do some research on that. I'd mm. like it individually fact-checked, Matt. You know, you know, I'm a stickler <laughs> for facts. Don't don't get bogged down in it. That's all I okay. say. Okay. Anyway, enough of this. Enough of this enough silly of chat. This. Let's listen to David Baker's fantastic chat about SLS. Roll Brilliant. the tape. Ecoute. Uh Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. Yes. Yeah, so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, SLS because I think that's a, a really interesting topic right now. There seems to be quite a lot yes. of uh, things happening and quite a lot of things on the rumour mill. So um, I, I, I kind of wanted to start with a, a pretty leading question, which is, do you think SLS will fly and do you think it will ever carry crew? Well, it's a very interesting aspect as to whether SLS will ever fly. I I certainly think it will. Um, And uh, whether it will carry a crew, yes, I I also think it will. But whether it will live up to the expectations of those who have been pushing both within NASA and within the contractor base for it to achieve its advertised goal... Um, I'm not so sure. Would I be right in saying, really, the birth of SLS is really because of various lobbying groups that were really the the old shuttle contractors, basically to try and keep jobs at Michoud and Orbital ATK and things like that, and and maybe it was the wrong way to go, because it just seems to me you've got almost shuttle technology as the kind of thing that, uh, that they're spending lots of money on as a future space project, it doesn't seem to make sense on that front. Or would you think that that's a bit unfair? Well, that's a very interesting thing uh, with regard to it using legacy equipment. Um, and, and it's really a product, I think, the fact that we question it now as to whether it's the right way to go, purely with the 2020 vision of hindsight because, of course, it does go back a very, very long way, and it goes back to a period when there were no other alternative options. We have to go really back almost 20 years in the origin of the Space Launch System. It goes back even before its precursor, Ares 5. Ares 5, of course, uh, as, as we know, was part of the heavy lift component of the Constellation program, which really gave birth in 2004 after the Columbia disaster, when the political elite in Congress and the White House particularly were very concerned as to whether to continue to fund the shuttle after the loss of the second orbit to Columbia, um, or whether to completely wipe the slate clean and start with something completely new and different. 
And Bush, the president at the time, decided that uh, what would happen is that the space station, the International Space Station, would be retired from American support by 2010, and that uh, the money that was thus saved uh, on both that and the retirement of the shuttle uh, would be put to the development of a whole new space program that could be integrated. In other words, that you weren't reinventing the wheel every time you wanted to do something new in space, but that it would create a set of vehicles that would be integrated fully for a massive range of different options for humans in space, from 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 space stations in Earth orbit to space stations around the moon to moon bases to Mars missions, all of that with a common set of hardware. And this is before there was any interest from any commercial sector in producing rockets of a size that could meet that requirement. And in a way, it's really strange because it goes back to the criticism that NASA has faced uh, three times in its history where it has completely wiped the slate clean and started again. It started with Apollo after the Mercury-Germany missions by having a completely new generation of vehicles, including lunar modules, which gave a tremendous capability. And then from that came a desire to base a future on Apollo hardware. And it was largely because of Apollo 13 that the political leadership became very worried and concerned about the risks that were being run with these very ambitious programs. And so the Apollo program was retired completely. And I think we forget today that, in fact, there was such fear and concern that the very last Apollo mission was delayed by President Nixon so that the presidential election could be held before the launch because he feared the consequences of the public accusing him while in office during his first term of continuing to support a program that could bring about more fatalities. Mm. Apollo 17 was delayed to December after the November 1972 election. So there was huge concern. And so the Apollo program was shut down. And then we all convinced ourselves, and I I was with NASA at the time, and, and I can remember the great sense of euphoria that we felt we could develop a reusable integrated launch and spacecraft system and in fact it was known as the integrated launch and re-entry vehicle before it was named shuttle and it seemed uh, a a wonder machine that would propel us to a period where for decades we could use reusability and a whole new generational technology and then of course that became inappropriate for what we next wanted to do which was go back to the moon or to mars and to go into deep space so essentially we're between a rock and a hard place now we're between (laughs) continually cancelling the old order and designing and devising new technologies or because we're taking so long now to develop this new generation this current generation of technology that is beginning to look very old-fashioned as the commercial competitors are coming along and seeming to do it more efficiently yeah i mean i read yesterday in 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 an article how uh united launch alliance uh they they had a back in i think it was 2003 they had a program for their delta 4 heavy rocket that used the ACES upper stage section. And the, uh, they, they yep. reckon that they could get 90 tonnes to low Earth orbit. 
for less than £10 billion. And, and that, in, in the context of what's been spent on SLS, seems yeah. like it's, it's, it's been a financial, <laughs> well, just, well, been financially incredibly expensive for NASA to be developing uh, the hardware. Particularly, and, and I think you're right, I, I guess, you know, in retrospect, everyone can say, oh, look at the commercial sector, isn't it doing well reducing the cost of hardware? Do you think really NASA's role now may be to, to, to paddle back and say, right, we're gonna, what we're going to do is concentrate on the stuff that no one knows how to do and, uh, and leave the rest to commercial, um, to commercial space, including the heavy lift capability? Well, I think there's certainly a great uh, opportunity within the commercial sector to play a very much stronger role, both on the launch side as well as on the mission in space hardware side, um, we must be very careful that we're not seduced by the razzmatazz and the PowerPoint presentations <laughs> and the visual graphics of the commercial sector. And in fact, a little bit of a wake-up call already within the last few weeks, Elon Musk has started to, to, to uh, row back from the expectations of Falcon Heavy. Mm. He has said it has been the most challenging shock of his whole professional life to see the enormous uphill struggle they've now got to get Falcon Heavy flying. And he is saying there's a 5% chance that it will succeed on its first flight. He said he felt that... Um, that that it would simply be a matter of strapping three Falcon 9s together, <laughs> what could be simpler, and off you go. You've got a launch system which is well on its way toward potentially achieving the lift capability of Apollo Saturn V. And now he says that he is deeply concerned. They've run into so many problems. They real, he, He's actually said he, they, they realize why NASA has had to spend so much and has taken so long replicating Saturn V with a completely new cryogenic and solid rocket motor booster system because he said the upscaling is, is uh, phenomenally more difficult than he had ever imagined. So, so already that plus the fact that there are changes to the commercial designs of spacecraft to make them a lot simpler, mm. less exotic. Um, that is also something that we need to be very, very careful that we don't get seduced by, that it's all too easy that we can do it. The commercial world is full of front men doing a lot of marketing. NASA's terrible at that. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's telling, isn't it? I, I've never seen such a negative... Uh, press conference from Elon Musk that one a couple of weeks ago where basically he cancelled the Red Dragon there's going to be no retro propulsion on the uh, you That's know right. on the <laughs> on their dragon That's capsules right. and it's, yeah. you suddenly think oh crikey they've, yeah. they've obviously had a massive wake-up call I mean and that's in the light of SpaceX yeah. having a, a phenomenally good year so they're obviously um, yeah they're having a great year but behind the scenes I guess they're having a, a wake-up call big time <laughs> The two good things about the commercial sector is that the first is that it's performing, and the second is led by a bunch of pragmatists who are not afraid to say it as it is. And unfortunately, I think the problem with NASA has been that it's been too fixated on its PR image, uh, which have proclaimed that its, its future, its hardware, its investment has been toward getting us on the surface of Mars. And it is almost as though it has had to sustain that 
as a race against the commercial competitors yeah. in much the way that the moon mission was a race against the Soviets. Yeah, I mean, it, it was terribly telling, wasn't it, when uh, NASA essentially announced only a few weeks ago that they really didn't have the money to land on Mars, even if they were to get there. <laughs> this was... is what we are seeing, in fact, from from um, the the new administration, the Trump administration, um, is certainly not um, rushing to put its name to a new space agenda. The the positive mood is in this that move uh, is that that the Space Council has been reinstated, mm. which has always been very, very good news. And uh, we thought that that was going to happen under the Trump administration, and it has. And the general feeling is that round about um, September, October, we are going to get a major announcement about space policy uh, in the United States. But I think this is going to embrace both civil and military uh, aspirations, um, Right now, the space program, the civilian space program that, that we're talking about, uh, is much less than half what the United States devotes to space. The military investment in space from the United States budget is, is very much larger than NASA's budget. So it is essentially the poor cousin of overall space expenditure in the United States. The Trump administration has said it wants to blur the margins between the civil and the military space programs. It feels there's been far too much uh, PR billboard advertising missions in order to create the impression of a country on the move. And it feels in discussions I've certainly had with a number of congressmen that, that they are getting feedback from the White House feeling that, okay, we've been on the moon, we've landed on Mars, we're dominating everywhere in the scientific civilian exploration of space, they believe. I don't think they're quite so dominant as they project that they are compared to the achievements of, of Europe and, and indeed of the expansion of China's interests. Mm. But at the same time, there is this feeling um, from the Trump administration going across to the leadership in Congress in, in corridor discussion that they want to see much more of a focus on the robust um, reinforcement of military assets in space. And I do believe that what we're going to see when a policy remit comes out that there's going to be much more emphasis on looking to the commercial sector. And this is where I'm a little cautious about saying, yes, SLS will fly, and yes, Iran will fly on SLS, simply because I don't feel there is the energy there, either within Congress or now the White House, to actually push fully forward with that to happen. But so much money has been spent on those two systems that it is very difficult to see it just simply being completely wiped out. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I was going to ask you about the National Space Council and, and, and how that changed things. Do you, do you think for SLS it's a positive thing? I mean, you're clearly saying it's, it's a positive thing for the space policy in general, but for SLS, do you think that the Space Council is going to turn out to be a good thing, or do you think that they will have a wake-up moment where they could just turn around and cancel the whole thing? Well, it's very interesting that one of the one of the saving factors in the space launch system may be nothing to do with NASA. Um, it was moved across about a year and a half ago under the Obama administration to having a new level of classification. 
this means that it is very difficult now for non-US citizens to gain access to the Marshall Space Flight Center. Um, and many people wondered at the time why there was this shift across to a much higher level of security. And it's coincident with the fact that a number of um, a number of individuals in various agencies of the United States government have pointed to the opportunities which the space launch system would afford for the National Reconnaissance Office. The diameter of mirror systems that you could use on optical observation recon satellites is vastly greater and incredibly more potent by launching off the bulbous payload fairing of a SLS-1B than ever you can get off a Delta IV or even off the ULA Vulcan, the new launch vehicle which is being proposed for later in the decade. And this has been, it, it's been thunderingly silent from any comment in the media, the fact that if you put that capability into the payload bay of a space launch system, you have got a probably tenfold increase in the resolution capability of military reconnaissance satellites. And it was moved across into an area which shifts it into the level of classification with massive ITAR mm. belts and braces around it that didn't exist a year and a half ago. So really, the military aspect, military use of SLS might be the thing that comes along and saves it? Is that what we're saying? The, the possibility exists. The technical capacity of the system lends itself more favorably to that only because it cannot be matched by any other launch vehicle on the drawing board or certainly not flying today. Mm. And that potential has already been noted and is already being discussed in certain circles. So I don't think we need necessarily look uh, specifically to the very protracted launch schedule yeah. for SLS. Now it's not, it's not going to fly before early 2020 now, and probably three years after that before the crewed flight on Orion will go. You know, I just have the feeling that um, this is going to moulder along like this because the commercial sector that I'm wholly supportive of want to see much more involved, would like to see more government money going into for not a subsidy, but to to buy those services in for less cost than it's charging in-house to build more expensive systems. Yeah. I do want to see the commercial sector much more successful, much more supported, and much more supportive of, a, of an old space, new space hybrid mix yeah. for the future. But I am very concerned that, that they just don't have the the gravitas and and the inertia uh, that the government establishments have with their research facilities, um, which are almost overkill now. Half of these NASA facilities are empty. They echo in 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 the with the absence of hardware. Uh, these facilities were built for a massive space program that we no longer have. And remember that if we were to discount for inflation the value of the budget now that NASA has is just 20% that it had at the peak of Apollo. I mean, that obviously says it all. And uh, one thing that I did notice was Elon Musk, had, I don't know whether he'd gone to Congress, but someone from SpaceX was arguing that, uh, that they should have a similar program as they've had for developing the commercial crew 
to the International Space Station for the journey to Mars. Um, and that they're actually, you know, arg arguing that, that that should be where commercial space fits in, that there should be this development programme. Is it called COTS, the ISS uh, funding? That's right, yes, yes. Um, the overall COTS system... Um is 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 extremely important in the future because the enabling hardware doesn't exist we can't go back to the moon and we can't go to mars with any of the things that are being built at the present time and nasa is of course um under contract to six or seven contractors for a habitation module the habitation module is going to be essential the orion can only support four people for a month it can't go anywhere it is it it is being advertised by NASA as the vehicle which will send humans to Mars. Palpably, it is not, because it simply will be carried as the powered-down taxi to get you home uh, in the last few hours of the mission returning from the moon or from Mars. But it cannot do anything in and of itself. In order for a crew to survive long enough in deep space to go anywhere serious, uh, you need a habitation module. And this is all part of NASA's strategy of the deep space gateway. Mm. And because NASA has recognized from about five years ago that it never will have the money to send people to Mars itself, um, this is when the diversification of contracts came with the very construction of Orion itself, where the service module went to Europe, where no money exchanges happens. It is simply that an equitable number of man-hours aboard the International Space Station is freely available to the European Space Agency in return for Europe paying for and building a variation of the ATV logistics vehicle in the form of the service module for the Orion spacecraft. It, 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 it was such a shock to those of us who, who have been around this business for, for decades um, that here is America's flagship human spaceflight vehicle now being built partly in America and partly in Europe. Mm. That never, ever would have happened several decades ago had it not been driven by the financial pressure. Lockheed Martin simply were not able to do it for the price that NASA could afford and, and uh, have been extremely, I think, disappointed is, is a massive understatement by the fact that NASA took the service module away from them and gave it to the Europeans. And there is not a lot of love lost between the Lockheed Martin engineers and those in Europe who are building the service module. And there's not exactly the best levels of cooperation that you'd expect from an international venture because of that. The next level now is the fact that NASA knows it cannot build a deep space habitat as a living space, a, a, a module like a space station module to live in with Orion docked on one end while you, you have the long transit times out to Mars. And, and this is why they're, they're shifting and shuffling and playing around with these cones with various funds in, taking money from there, putting it under that one in order to fund XYZ, in order to try to find a way in which the commercial sector can be encouraged to come up with something that NASA does not have the money to build itself, which is the habitation module, and then lease it from the commercial sector for the missions you actually need. 
Yeah. And that can then, with a common set of design criteria, can be used by the commercial sector, having designed the deep space habitation sector module, because that can be used for other commercial applications by the commercial sector. So it makes sense there. Yeah, I mean, with the with the SLS and the deep space gateway, and, and the, the one thing I think that there's a massive uh, shift going on at the moment is people are stopping talking about Mars and they're talking about the moon again. Uh, even Elon yeah. Musk is talking about a moon base before landing on Mars and it's yeah. another sort of rollback. Do you think that if the emphasis goes away from Mars and suddenly becomes fully concentrated on the moon, which is, which is I know it's another completely new topic, but if, if that happened, would SLS actually have more of a role Yes, I think it would have a much stronger role, and, and I've always been an advocate of Moon First, because there are so many technical and physiological, um, almost as well psychological yeah. challenges from taking crews to Mars. It's a whole different operating environment. We, we have never operated with people more than three days away from home at maximum, and those for only just a few days away at that distance, i.e. on the surface of the Moon. Um, it is essential, in my view, that we use the moon. We need to take these short incremental steps. It's big enough that we go from a very strong and established base of learning and knowledge and experience for now 17 years living permanently in Earth orbit in space stations. That's going to be the kind of thing we need to test in the vicinity of the moon, mm. to learn how to handle the movement of vehicles around um, a body which is not homogeneous in terms of mass distribution. We need to know how to navigate and operate around a body which is lumpy, which pulls and shoves on what we call mass cons and mini cons, these gravitational incongruities in its sphere. We learned this in Apollo. One of the biggest challenges in Apollo was keeping hold of the orbital dynamics because the orbits were being pulled and tugged around the moon in such a way because of the mass concentrations underneath the ground track of the vehicle as it was flying over, speeding it up, slowing it down. And there were two occasions when the crew had to be woken up in order to carry out a minor height adjustment maneuver to prevent it becoming not crashing into mountains on the moon, yeah. but getting so low that it was distorting the relationship uh, that you needed with the lander on the surface for a possible emergency departure from the surface. So the geometry of the vehicle on the ground on the moon and the vehicle in orbit that you'd have to rendezvous with was, was within tight constraints and red lines. And the moon itself was continually pulling those. We don't even know how to handle large masses of spacecraft structure around a body like the moon yeah. the earth is much more homogenous <laughs> yeah, that's, and, that's, and that yeah. that's extremely interesting so mars has that similar lumpy yes. gravitational pull that's yes. extremely interesting and and, yeah. and and just in these last few weeks some some pioneering groundbreaking papers have indicated that the that that mars is a world of two halves that the southern hemisphere, so vastly different from the north, is because of a massive impact that occurred, which has accounted for these very strange incongruities in the orbital ground track of orbiters we're seeing now at Mars. These worlds are not Earth-like. Mm. They're, not, they're not smooth, and, and there are gravitational anomalies all around the Earth, but they're nothing compared to those around 
the moon. Well, I'm extracting one tiny yeah. technical challenge. But I mean, that, that's one of many, big, presumably. That's one of one many. Of many <laughs> one of many. I find it so exciting that we could go out on deep space expeditions within reach within five years. We don't need all of the problems about radiation protection, how to keep people alive for, for one and a half to three years. A distance point so great from Earth that our home planet isn't even a little dot and where the sun is just a pale star in the sky. We've got to go gently and carefully and methodologically. It was big enough step going from basic Earth orbit of the John Glenn period to landing on the moon within seven years, those two events. Well, incredible. First American manned orbital flight and boot prints on the moon in just over seven years. That was bad enough, but this is too big a step with too many uncertainties. We've got a fantastic robotic um, automated space flight program that can provide vast quantities of information about the conditions on the surface and in the environment of Mars. Let's build all that in parallel with fully throwing the challenge to the commercial sector about getting us working in and around the moon. Not it isn't just about going from here to the surface. It's learning all those technical and engineering challenges that are so fascinating and so stimulating, we could create a whole new industry of, of lunar science and engineering, which would get young people actually physically hands-on working with things that we could, could have in operation within five years. Yeah. But to scatter ourselves all over the solar system... <laughs> It's going to completely destroy the focus and, and will not do anything. Yeah, I mean, it has to be said that I, I fully agree with that and, and I can never really quite grasp the argument of Mars first. And I know, obviously, there's Robert Zubrin and people like that who are adamant yeah. that it should be Mars. <laughs> but um, I, do, do you think the fact that the moon has water... Because I think that that's a game changer. The fact that the, the, the moon obviously has a great deal of water, which was, I guess, a surprise... Uh, that really should be the incentive to go back there and say, okay, there's, there's actually, there's, what would you call it, resources, I suppose, on the moon that are now worth yeah. going back and, and revisiting and saying, yes, let's, let's yeah. set up all these camps. I mean, because you, you've even got essentially the moon being, as Bob Richards, we, which we've had on the show before, who speaks very much like you do about <laughs> setting up stuff on the moon first. <laughs> Is yeah. we've got a, yeah. we've got a fuel station that's you know a, a gas station that's in the solar system yeah. in terms of the moon. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So. And and when you think that that the biggest bridge to climb is to get the energy that we need to go anywhere in the solar system, fifty percent of the energy to go anywhere in the solar system is achieved by going into low Earth orbit first. Mm. So we can go anywhere from that point for a relatively little amount of energy, less than it takes to go from the ground up, less than the distance between London and Paris, vertically gets 50% out of the way of the energy you need to go anywhere in the solar system. So instead of leaping off and going to very distant places and exploiting that, keep close in around your engineering, scientific and operational experience and learn to live and work and operate to, to establish and to sustain Antarctica-type research stations on the moon, feeding a lot of science in as a peripheral advantage. 
the building an engineering base and experience and an operational capability of the very different way that we will have to learn about how to operate vehicles in distant places, but not so distant as Mars. We have no means of a backup, a rescue capability, or anything. We don't need to run the risks that we did in the Apollo program. We, we debated this so, so very, very frequently, and there were times during that interim period between John Glenn and the moon landing when the whole strategy of, of how we would use the hardware, when we decided on lunar orbit rendezvous, where you have one launch vehicle sending two spacecraft, only one of which will go down to the surface and a mothership remains. Even that was considered so risky that very considerable study was given to the possibility of having a rescue mission. And in fact, that was wheeled out and used in the Skylab program, where there was a rescue ship and a launch vehicle on the pad ready in case we had to go and rescue the Skylab astronauts. And we said then, never again will we go to distant places without having a callback capability with a rescue vehicle able to sprint off and bring them home safely. We don't have anything like that that we could even imagine constructing for a Mars mission. No we need to build the infrastructure, get science coming out of learning about the moon, understand the resources. We have, we have pressures on this planet. The people and governments talk of constantly sustained growth that we are totally unable to support from the indigenous resources on this planet. Mm. We have to make a, a almost a sociological decision as to whether we're going to, to, to stop progress, to halt growth, to just go back into just a self-sustaining way of living, or if we want to expand, we want to move on out, we're going to have to learn how to do it incrementally, not by leaping ahead beyond our capabilities. Yeah, I, and that's the big concern. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, the, uh, obviously the economic false dichotomy of we shouldn't be spending money on space when there's people starving in the world actually becomes a reasonable argument when you talk well, about Mars. But when well, you talk about space exploration to the moon, I actually think you could now argue and say, look, we, we need to come up with ways of, say, of protecting the planet and actually tapping into resources elsewhere so that we're not completely destroying the planet. And I, I, I think that that's yes. a, a really major argument for returning back to the moon rather than yes. going to Mars. Yes, exactly so, completely so. And may I say on this business about expenditure, um, and if I may be allowed a little advertising blurb, in, in last month's issue of Spaceflight magazine from the British Interplanetary Society, I did in the first of one of my new series with regard to looking at the facts and the figures behind behind questionable statements that are made about space. I looked at the global space industry. And the bottom line on this is that now little more than 20% of the money that is spent on space is spent by taxpayers and spent by governments. The tax paid by the commercial space sector is more than the money that governments spend on government-funded space exploration. Yeah, I, I have to say, I read that article yesterday, uh, <laughs> and it, it really is a fantastic article, because, yeah, it really does drive... I, in fact, well, I really enjoy those type of articles that take a, a premise 
and actually look yeah. into it. And and when you when you look into it, you think, well, crikey, how it's almost now. How dare anyone even say it? You know, it's yes, exactly. And I think that it's very important for us to, while we may be very enthusiastic for a lot of of of, of, of justifiable reasons on the great balance of of how we have to commit resources, financial material, um, human resources, skills, right across the spectrum in a world that's crying out for so many priorities. Um, we have to be able to justify things in pragmatic ways when limited and finite resources come into play. And one of the most limited uh, is, is the financial assets of wealthy countries. And that was why I feel it is very important to completely raise this false news, almost fake news, that that space is, is a gross indulgence that should be an embarrassment. It should be, it should be a celebrated success story. Yeah. But, now, but now it is not only paying for itself, it is actually funding all of the aspirational motivations that can empower the next and future generations of young people on this planet. Yeah, uh, it's, it is actually quite uh, depressing how low level the debate is on, say, British broadcasting uh, on the television. Yeah. You, 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 I actually watched one yeah. yesterday. We, our last week's guest was Sarah Crudus, and she was on a she was on Good Morning Britain right. or something like that, discussing it. And obviously, yeah. she's a, an advocate. and uh, And there was a campaigner literally using the arguments that essentially you've debunked in that last issue of mm. uh, Spaceflight. Mm. And it's mm. and, and and it's just depressing that that debate only hits the television what once every three or four mm. months. So the, the, the message mm. never really gets out there. And I guess that's uh, one of the things that's, that actually a moon mission might save, mightn't it? People would be interested because it's people yeah. being involved again, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's the only way to get exciting. Tim Peake yes. did a good job. but Yes, yes, yes. And, and I think that one of, the, one of the things we need to remind ourselves as well is that the, back in 1972, there was a book written called Only One Earth, and it did much to destroy people's belief and faith in technology, being able to get ourselves out of, even then in the early 1970s, the dawning realization that we were running out of resources and that we were running out of the means to sustain ourselves in the life to which we'd like to be accustomed, and to which most in the Western world are accustomed. And that book, Only One Earth by Barbara Ward, had on its cover, the black cover, the picture from Apollo 17 of the Earth as this blue marble. And, and while it used essentially what it claimed was the abusive use of technology for politically indulgent gameplay, it did create a sense of awareness of a very fragile Earth. And now, 45 years later, we've come full circle and are in fact understanding that investment in this kind of technology and a development on a more international basis of a combined effort of resource allocation can create the very things that can help us undo the wrongs that we have done in previous centuries and decades of real abusive use of our environment. It is the mechanism. 
find yourself in the middle of a minefield. You don't put on sackcloth and ashes and run for the hills. You use a more complex technology to extricate yourself from the situation you find yourself in. That is how I see the space program. We must use all the technological assets that we've got in order to turn ourselves around from this racing abuse of resources and extraction of depleted minerals and extraordinarily rare earth products that we're extracting at ever-increasing rates to fuel our consumer society. So I do feel that in the round we can link hands with 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 the most with the most truly dedicated environmentalists who probably hate technology <laughs> and think it's been the terrible undoing of the planet, because we can link with them and say this is the way out of it to inspirationally, almost almost spiritually in a way, yep. to connect with this earth because we are a product of it. It gave life to us. And we have to live and share it with our boldest aspirations. So in my view, all of that ideological, philosophical approach returns to a single central point that we need, we need to get really serious. Stop kidding ourselves that we can jump on a spaceship to Mars within a decade or so and that we need to, to very, very incrementally make those steps that are fundable, justifiable, and that can serve some of the broader needs, not only of the space program itself, but also of those of the rest of humanity on a very Earth-centred focus. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, um, that is pretty visionary, and I, and I completely agree with the sentiments. In fact, I would, I'd take it one step further. It's not just the space program, but science itself as well has become, you know, yeah. is, is under attack, even from environmentalists, yeah. like you said. And, and it, it would be marvellous, wouldn't it, if... if Really, there was a movement where science and space exploration were, again, lofted as things that were environmental and that they were things yeah. that, that are really yeah. for the spiritual, uh, spiritual best of mankind and would actually take yeah. us into a, into, a, into a whole new level of, yeah. of, of existence yeah. that, that does care yeah. for everything. And, you know, there's, they're not mutually exclusive science and space exploration and, and the uh, husbandry of the planet, I suppose. This has been a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, conversation, David. But I'm going to I'm going to have to cut it short because uh, and now yep. I've now, okay. now we'll have an extremely long podcast, which is always the way. But that's but, 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 but that's fantastic. I mean, I, I really wish that um, yeah, I could I could finally put the do we go to Mars or do we go to the Moon argument to bed. I I just think it's it's blatantly the Moon, but I, I still think yep. there's going to be people out there that that, that are you know really gung-ho for Mars. There will be. Yeah. There will be, yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I invite them to come on the show and give their side of the argument. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Matt. It's been lovely talking to you. There we go. There we go. So soak it up and make sure you check out the Spaceflight magazine and, you know, really, really think about becoming a member of the British Interplanetary Society, not only because you get the Spaceflight magazine for free, Matt, but what a great place yeah, to be involved in. Yeah, you go down there, use the library, hang out with the ultimate space The lectures people. are unbelievable. Check out what they've got coming up and what they've done in the past. It's really, really amazing. And it's just a stone's throw yeah, from Vauxhall know, Underground best, Station. And always, Easy and always to get the best to. bit is you go for a nice little drink with the space experts afterwards. Wait, I never get invited. Well, yeah, but that's because you, you would... Um... Oh, this is awkward. You all go for a drink without me. <laughs> 
Well, you know what you like when you've had a drink, James. Fine. That is the, is yeah, that's that? true. Yeah. I'm a I'm a space liability. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like one of those you're like a satellite that's in low Earth orbit that has no way of getting out of low Earth orbit when it's retired. <laughs> I'm like you, I'm like one of those sort of 1960s drunk Russian astronauts yeah. who's got a vodka pouch yeah. in his arm in his astronaut suit. You just never know. I'm like a coiled <laughs> spring. You're like when you're down the pub, everyone's thinking, when is Jamie going to cause a Kessler moment? That's it. <laughs> that, we're only joking, of course. This is this is slander. Jamie is a very well behaved. Very well behaved. Very well behaved drinker. I always drink responsibly. And oh, so talking should of drinking, I sound like Jerry Springer. <laughs> talking of drinking, Jamie, we've got an episode coming up soon yeah. with Cos with Cosmic yeah. Carol, and we're going to be trying out space related beers while talking about alcohol in space. What? It's going to be one of my most. It's going to be oh, the most wicked. exciting episode ever. So that's coming up soon. Um, so oh, to make wait. sure that you don't miss that episode, please subscribe to iTunes now. And of course, being yep. that that information that you just heard from Dave was so spectacularly good, I hope that we get a five-star rating from you space cats out there. Pretty, pretty please, pretty please. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the Interplanetary Podcast today. Thanks once again. And, and uh, we'll speak to you. We'll see you soon. We'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. Bye-bye.